omniscient and omnipresent God, that he will do what he will do. What he has uh, set out to do, he's going to do it. He has the power. What he has purposed cannot be thwarted by anyone or anything. He is in complete control over everything. In other words, he cannot be frustrated. At times, sometimes we have this idea of God who is being so frustrated with us, or like, you know, things are just not working out the way he, he, he wants, and that, you know, we are taking all these spiritual detours, and so sometimes we have this uh, understanding of God who is very frustrated with all of us, right? And that he's just like kind of resorting to, the, to plan B and just, okay, I'm just going to do different things and figure out what would just stick. No, everything that God has planned or everything that has happened is taking place according to his plan. So in other words, he's, he cannot be frustrated because everything he has set out to do, it is happening in our midst. And so today, and today we're going to be looking at the truth that God is the everlasting God. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 28. I don't know if you have that uh, thing. Isaiah chapter 40, uh, verse 28. Oh, have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Our God, makes, the scripture makes it very clear that he's the, the everlasting God. He lasts forever. And we are not simply, when we, talking, uh, when we talk about the everlasting God, we are not simply talking about his, the future, that he's going to live on forever. That's not the only thing that we are going to be, ta- uh, that's not o- the only thing that we mean. But we are also talking about the past, Not only he will always be, but he has always been from the very future, uh, from the the past to the future. He's the everlasting God. So the fact that God uh, God is everlasting can be understood in a couple different ways. And the first uh, point is that God is eternal, that God is eternal. You know, one of the attributes of God that boggles our mind is his eternal presence or existence, right? He's without beginning and end. He's without end. There was never a moment when he did not exist, and there will never be a time that he ceases to exist. It seems like, um, you know, the sun will continue on forever. But according to space.com, actually it will run out of the hydrogen in about five billion years. And the sun will cease to exist. That will be the end of sun. Even the five billion years, right? It's such an astronomical number that we can't really just wrap our heads around. But it shows that even the sun does not last forever. You know, when we talk about the eternality of God, I think we simply, we, uh, we think it simply means that he will live forever. But it means more than that when we say God is eternal, right? 
It doesn't, that's the only way we often think of, that God lives forever. But it also means that he's timeless and he's ageless, always existing and also never changing. And no other cre- uh, creature, creation in this universe shares this attribute with him. You know, the length of our life here is predetermined. No matter how desperately we want to break free from it, we want to live as long as we could. Why is there mourning? Why is there such grieving when someone who who we care about passes? Because we want them to be with us longer. All of us yearn for that life, a long life, good life. But the truth of the matter is that our life here on earth is predetermined. It's finite. And we depend on him for our existence, for our very existence. But he does not depend on anyone or anything. He was God, he is God, and he will be God forever. So, you know, uh, we come to this passage in uh, Exodus chapter 3, and just the context of this passage is that uh, Moses, after fleeing from Egypt uh, <clears throat> for killing an Egyptian guard, because the Egyptian guard was just, uh, beating up on his fellow you know, Hebrew, and so he got really upset, and so he just killed that Egyptian guard. And then the following day, when two of the fellow, you know, uh, the Jews, uh, the Israelites were fighting, and he was trying to, why are you guys doing that? And so they said, hey, are you going to kill us just like the way you killed that Egyptian guard? And so he was so afraid, and so he ran for his life, and he got married in the wilderness. So he was, um, he was tending the flock of his father-in-law, and he was near Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. And then he notices something very strange, the burning bush, but that it's not being consumed. So he was looking at it and said, that's so strange. It's so weird. And, you know, back in those days, they didn't have CG or anything, right? It's a real life, right? A burning bush that is not being consumed. So he goes there just to check, uh, check it out. And there he encounters God. And God first identifies himself as a God who has committed himself in the covenant to the patriarchs. You know, in verse 6, you know, uh, you know, basically, you know, God says, you know, just take your sandals off, right? You are standing on the holy ground. And in verse 6, and he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So he is revealing himself as a God who is committed. He has already committed himself in the covenant, to his forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So that's how first he identifies himself. And God tells Moses that he is sending him back to Egypt to bring Israel out of Egypt. Right? And so, and he's like, oh, who am I, right? I'm just uh, a shepherd, right? I'm just, uh, I don't even have my own sheep. I'm just, you know, helping out my father-in-law, right? Who am I? To, to do that, right, against the most powerful nation, the most powerful army in the world. So when Moses asked him what he can tell the people who ask what God's name is, God answers first, I am 
who I am. And then he shortens it to I am has sent me to you. Right? Tell them, I am has sent me to you. You know, ancient people assumed that the prayer would only be heard if the deity was addressed correctly. So that's why, probably why, first of all, Israelites, they don't know really, they don't know Moses, right? As who are you? And, uh, you know, if you're going to actually just bring us out of uh, Egypt, there will be times that we're going to have to cry out to him and we're going to pray. And so what is his name? We want to know what his name is. So um, that's why probably Moses predicted that people would ask him about God's name. You know, in modern days, a person's name is usually used as, a, as an identifying label, right? Like my name distinguishes me from the rest of you guys. When we are all together, how am I going to se- you know, separate myself from you guys? I mean, uh, yeah, of course, we look different, but, you know, like from the people who do not know us, it's our name. But usually our name in modern days is just to, as a, a tool to identify ourselves. That's how it's used. Um, and that really is the main function of a name these days. However, biblical names have their background in the widespread tradition and provide significant information about the one who bears it. In the Old Testament, constantly... Uh, celebrates God's making his name known to Israel. And your name here means God himself uh, has, uh, as uh, he has revealed himself, uh, as he has revealed himself by his word and by his deed. So God's name is often, it accompanies and it shows what kind of, what he has done and what kind of the nature of God, right? So, we have different names of God in the Bible, right? Jehovah Jireh. Does, does anybody know what it means, Jehovah Jireh? He, that word is also used. And it's God who provides. Jehovah Rapha. That means God, a God who heals. And such. So by his self-revelation, God is authorizing Israel to invoke him by the name that he provides. So it's this pretty significant moment here. Moses says, hey, when I go back to the Israelites, when they ask me what the name of God is, what should I say? And so God says, I am, my name is, I am who I am. He's revealing his nature. And in the Bible, it is rendered the Lord, right, with a capital, all capital, not capital L and then a small letter uh, O-R-D, but capital letter L-O-R-D, right? Or uh, we can also say, you know, pronounce it Yahweh, right? And actually in Hebrew word, that sounds like, uh, the word here, it, it sounds like I am, right? It sounds like I am anyways. And so that's how it's rendered. So whenever we see in the, especially in the Old Testament, when there's a difference between all capital L-O-R-D, right? And just uh, Lord, uh, Adonai, right? Or Yahweh. So the Yahweh is the name of God, meaning I am. Right? And it means that he has, he, he is existing, he's the everlasting God. And so this self-revelation in chapter 3 of Exodus, this self-revelation points 
to I am who I am, it points to his eternal, self-sustaining, self-determining, sovereign reality. But he could have given all these other names. He could have said, hey, I am this, I am that, or yeah, I am the God who heals, I am such and such. But he gives this name, I am who I am, or short, shorten, I am. He simply exists. And also, the burning bush that was not consumed, it also shows his own inexhaustible right, uh, like, uh, life. He's just like that a fire. It burns, but it doesn't consume. He's like a fire that burns but not consumed at all. You know, unlike man, God does not will to exist. Or God does not make an effort. God does not need to make an effort effort to exist. For us, we have to will to exist, right? We have to take care of ourselves. I mean, like, as, as I'm getting older, you know, within the last year or so, I started doing something that I've never, ever done, right, in my life. What is that? I started taking multivitamin pills. I've never taken it. It's like, who cares, right? I mean, like, that's just like the, the marketing strategy of people, you know, they just want to earn some money, and so I'm not giving my hard-earned money to them. So I, I wasn't taking any uh, multivitamins, uh, but now, like, you know, the more I'm reading and things, talking to the doctors and things, okay, maybe I should really, like, you know, if I want to really care, take care of my own body and hopefully I will live longer, right, I have to make efforts, right, and I'm like, you know, I know, like, I'm pretty big and stuff, but, you know, I got to now try to cut down on, you know, what I eat. You know, I have, I'm, you know, popping like this, you know, the cholesterol, like, you know, pills, you know, to lower my cholesterol level, and all these things. And I have to, like, take care of myself, right, to live long, at least to maintain health. We all do that. We, we will to exist, and we have to make efforts. We have to take care of our bodies, right? well-being, to exist uh, and to, to live further, where, uh, to more, but longer. But God does not will to exist. In that uh, call to worship uh, passage, right, in Psalm 90, uh, verse 4, it says, a thousand years is a blink of an eye, really, to God. A thousand years. Man, can you imagine if you live for a thousand years? That's such a long time. I mean, from, you know, this 2021, if you subtract a thousand years, what happened back then, it seems such a long time ago that we barely even understand or know anything about it. But to God, it was basically a blink of an eye, a thousand years. He's not bound by time like we are. So when we say that God is eternal, it follows that God's reign is also eternal, right? Because God is eternal, that means the reign of God is also eternal. Psalm 145, 13, it says this, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. That he reigns forever because God himself is eternal. His reign is eternal. And it also means that the word of God is eternal because God is eternal. The word of God is eternal. The word of the everlasting God is timeless truth. 
Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6 through 8 says this, and I don't know if we have that. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6 through 8. Yeah. Oh, not this one, the chapter 6. Do I not have that? Yeah. It says, A voice says, Cry. And I said, What shall I cry? Of all flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. What God has spoken will stand forever. We are here for a fleeting moment, and then we are gone. Unless you're such an exceptional person, most likely our, we will be forgotten within a generation or two. Right? Maybe, maybe our children, and no, of course our children, and maybe like grandchildren right, may remember. But then, I mean, like my great Grandfather, I barely know him, right? I don't think I even know his name. I don't, remember, I don't know anything about him. I know my grandfather, my dad, right? So within a couple generations removed, nobody's going to remember us. Nobody's going to really care a whole lot. We're here for a fleeting moment, and then we are gone. And in Isaiah chapter 6, he, uh, you know, Isaiah or God, you know, just uh, compares us to like a grass that comes and withers. You know, this past week, um, you know, uh, you know it, it hasn't rained for a while, and I don't have the irrigation system already. And so, you know, I had a sprinkler so early in the morning, right, one morning. Uh, I happened to wake up like around 5.30 in the morning, and so I was like, all right, I'm just going to go. I couldn't go back to sleep, and so, all right, I'm just going to go out there and just water the, the, uh, the lawn and uh, the grass. So as soon as I walked out there, Right? I had a slipper on, and then um, it was really like wet. I was like, whoa, you know, because you know, it's been pretty hot these days. But I was really surprised in the morning, like around that time, there was morning dew right? that was just like covered the thing. I was like, oh, should I even give water? But obviously, the grass needs water, so I was sprinkling. But you know, as soon as the sun came up, that morning dew was, it was gone. It was gone quickly. That's how our life is. We are like the morning dew. One moment we are here. In the, in the span of just all eternity, our life here on earth is so fleeting. Even though to us, it seems that we, may, we want to live here forever, and it seems that we can live here forever. We can't. It's a fleeting moment. In comparison to the brevity of our life, God is saying his word stands forever. The word of God is eternal because God is eternal. Not only his reign and his word, but also his salvation and care for his people is eternal. The salvation that he has accomplished for us, it is eternal, and his care and love for us is eternal. Praise God that our salvation in Christ Jesus is eternally secure. It's not like a term life kind of thing, right? Praise God that 
you know, our salvation does not depend on us and on our efforts. You know, other religions teach that you must do good works to be saved. You have to put in the, the good works so that God, somehow you will earn enough of God's approval so that you can make it in the end. When you're good outweighs, so, you know, at the end of your life, there's going to be the balance, and if uh, you're good outweighs your bad, right? It, yeah, good outweighs the bad, right? Then you're going to make it into heaven. But if your bad outweighs your good, sorry, you're not going to heaven. You're not meeting God. So it's really all about you yourself. The other religions, is, the focus is on you. Right? And that's what the Pharisees were so, that's, that was the religion of the Pharisees. That they, they thought that the, their religion, the God, that the religion was all about offering sacrifices and what they did. Right? It was all about doing things. It was all about self-righteousness. It was all about self-salvation because in the end, God is in the back burner. It's all about you, what you do for God. And if you do enough good things, if you earn enough righteousness before God's eyes, you will be saved. But not Christianity. The gospel informs us that we must trust Christ and repent independent of our efforts and what we do. We are not saved by good works. And I know Pastor Jay has been very clear on this, right, as, he was, as we were talking about going through the book of James. But we are saved unto good works. So there's a big difference. We are not saved by good works, but we are saved unto good works so that we may do good works. Not on the, base, not on the basis of good works, but as a result of our salvation. As we are being conformed to his image, as we are being aligned to his will and his purpose, as we are becoming more like him. And that is, the, that is salvation. That we will do good works. So when we say that God is the everlasting God, first thing that we can understand is that God is eternal. Uh, God is eternal. And the second point is that God is self-existent. God is self-existent. He is absolutely free from any need and dependence. His existence or his good pleasure does not depend on anyone or anything outside of himself. He's the only being who is truly self-existent. And he's self-sufficient and truly free. All other beings, even the angels, everything, all other beings derive their life and blessedness from God. We cannot generate our own blessedness. We cannot generate uh, within us our own life. However, we truly desire to exist and live longer. We cannot, we are not in control. But all that is necessary for God's existence and perfect happiness is found in himself. He is life. It is his very nature to exist. He doesn't have to want to exist. He doesn't try to like exert himself to exist or try to somehow make his life longer. No. So Paul Washer, once again, uh, it's the, the sermon series is based on his work, and this is what he says. 
to teach or even suggest that God made man because he was lonely or incomplete, is absurd, and even blasphemous. Creation is not the result of some lack in God, but the result of his fullness or the overflow of his abundance. To teach that God somehow needs our help to make things run rightly in the world is equally absurd and blasphemous. He didn't create because he had a need, but because he desired to make known the superabundance of his perfections, glory, and goodness. Sometimes we may allude to like maybe um, we may yeah some people may think yeah why did God even create uh, created this whole universe in the first place? Oh, because he was kind of you know lonely or he you know it's suggesting that he had a need that in himself it was not complete. He was just getting so bored. The three persons of Godhead, you know, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, they were just you know in in in, in fellowship, and at, at some point, it's like, okay, I'm just so sick and tired of just looking at you guys. Why don't, I, why don't we just, you know, just make efforts and create this universe so that somehow our loneliness or our boredom will be satisfied? If you think along that line, absolutely absurd, and it can be blasphemous. God is self-sufficient, all self-sufficient. He has absolutely no need. Children sometimes ask, right, who made God? I mean, if God, and you know, you can totally kind of understand where they are coming from. If God made everything, then who made God? If they ask you, right, this is a great teaching moment, look them in the eye. And tell them that he never needed, God never needed to, uh, God never needed to be created, right? He never needed to be created because he was always there. There was never a moment when he did not exist. God is unlike anything or anyone that we know. There is no possibility in him of ceasing to exist. Think about that. There is not even a remote hint, possibility of God ceasing to exist because it is in his very nature. It's unlike anything that we've ever known. You know, in chapters, uh, Acts chapter 17, in his presentation of the unknown God to the Athenians, right, Paul explained that the creator of the world is not served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So Paul makes it very clear, God, as a self-existent God, had absolutely no need whatsoever. God has life in himself and draws his unending energy from himself, needing nothing. And every life flows out of him because he is the source, the only source of life. Anything that you see around us, our, us including, included, children, even the insects, 
whatever the, the invisible, like, you know, bacteria, everything, every life being, everything, whether it is, you know, uh, angels and what have you. It flows out of him because he is life. Psalm chapter 50, verse 12 and 13. I don't know if, do we have that? Uh, yeah, can we show that? So Psalm 50, verse 12 and 13. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? You know, if you go back to verse 12, what is verse 12 saying? It says, if I were hungry, I would not tell you. Is God saying that he would keep it to himself if he were hungry? I'm kind of like embarrassed to let you guys know that, that I'm kind of hungry because, you know, I'm a God after all. So, even if, so if I'm hungry, if I'm hungry, I'm not going to tell you guys. Is that what God is saying here? No. He's not saying that he's secretive or hiding things, hiding some kind of unmet needs from, from his people. What God is saying is that even if he had a need, such as hunger, which he doesn't, even if he has any need, he will not turn to us to meet his needs. But as is, as it were, God does not need anything. He has no need for anything. And he's saying, am I really craving the bulls or the blood of goats? I'm craving, guys, that's why I'm going to ask you guys to offer these sacrifices. Bring them to me so that I can be satisfied. No. Israel, the Israelites had misunderstandings about God and the whole sacrificial system. First, they thought that God needed what they had. He's asking for bulls and goats because he is in need. He wants it. He wants to eat it, or somehow he will just take care of it. Right? Otherwise, I mean, who knows? God may be hangry, right? Who knows? God is in need of something. God needs something that we have. That's why he's asking for the sacrifices. They thought like that. And second, they thought that God depended on what they gave. Okay, so if we give bulls and the blood of goats, that he will be satisfied now that we gave him what he needed. We need to keep giving him what he needs because he's dependent on our offering. That those are the things that they were thinking of. So to, uh, to that, God was addressing their misunderstanding. God is saying, I have no need. I do not need to rely on you. He's a self-existent, self-sufficient God. That's what it means when we say God is the everlasting God. They thought that the Israelites, they had it really wrong, right? They thought that the religion is man reaching out to God. Religion is all about us. Ministering to God, it's all about us serving God and somehow meeting his needs, something that God was missing in his life that we can provide. 
The joy and pleasure, hey, we are the ones because God needs our worship and adoration. That's why we have to worship him. We have to come to the temple, the church, so that God will be pleased. Because if we don't, right, he will feel a little mis- mis- he will feel miffed. Or he- he's, you know, he's not going to be happy if you don't do that. No. That's what the religion says. Religion says, as, as I said before, religion says do. You got to do this. You got to do this. You got to do this. You got to pray. You got to do this. Or do all these things. But the gospel says that Christianity is really, Christianity and the gospel says done. Other religions say they do. But the gospel says done. As Christ was dying on the cross, he was crying out. It is finished. It is paid off. It is done. That is the gospel, the truth of the gospel. All other religions, it's all about striving harder to somehow please their gods. They may not be so happy. The God, their gods may not be happy. They're watching and see if they can really just like, you know, observe all these things. And at the end of his life, they're just hoping that their goodness will outweigh their darkness, bad, their bad, so that they can make it into heaven. That's what the religion says. But the gospel says, it is done. Christ paid for our sins, penalty of our sins. He has paid it. The other religions, they suggest the way to, to God. The religions, right, they look for the truth. Hey, where is the truth? And let, let us find it. The other religions, they look for and just hope for the life. But the gospel says, Jesus says, he declares that I am the way, the truth, and the life. Right? No one can come to the Father except through me. The religions may suggest or point something, point the way. But Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Indeed, he is the life. In theology, many errors result from supposing that the conditions and limits of our own fragile, fragile existence apply to God. As if God has needs, just as we have needs. Sometimes we kind of project our human condition upon God, and because we have needs, somehow God may have needs. That is wrong. As the scripture makes it very clear, that God is the everlasting God. In our faith, we can also easily impoverish ourselves by bracing an idea of God that is limited, a God who is small. Understanding, that the, uh, understanding the, the truth that God is eternal and self-existent can help us avoid making such errors. Knowing that God's existence is independent protects us, protects our understanding of his greatness. Actually, knowing this really uh, has a practical value because without this clear understanding, we're going to project our needs onto God as if he has all those things. And when we think of like God being angry, we project man's anger, right? 
what happens when we get angry, right? It's ugly. Ugly. When we get really furious. So when the scripture says God is angry, we think, we think of, oh, God must be angry just like the way we are angry. You know, throwing, you know, temper, you know, the, I mean, just like, you know, throwing fits and, you know, just going crazy. No. When the, the scripture says God is jealous, we say, oh, God is jealous? Oh, I know some jealous, jealous people. Man, God is jealous just like that. Oh, what kind of God is he? Once again, we are projecting our sinful and tainted uh, view or uh, what we have seen, what we have experienced in our daily life. And when those words are described to God, ascribed to God, and we think that's how God must be like. When God's anger burns, we think it's just like the human anger. But it is not. Because he is, it's not possible for him to sin. Just that we are so prone to sin. We have to very care, be very careful about how, when the, what the scripture says, we have to carefully think through and what the scripture truly teaches. So it is my prayer for all of us that as we you know, continue examining uh, the attributes of God, that, that we would have a you know, more solid understanding of the attributes of God. And instead of having such a shallow, superficial understanding of these attributes of God, that we would really just dig into the word of God, examine what it says, as a whole counsel of God reveals who God is in a way that we can understand, that we are to understand, so that we may avoid falling into this theological, uh, you know, heresy or like, you know, blasphemy, or being really, uh, coming up with really flawed, deficient understanding of who God is. Because when we have those kind of understanding, they can truly impact our spiritual life in a negative way. So help, uh, let's you know, really uh, turn to the Word and really study the Word of God and really draw close, uh, closer to Him with a sound understanding and mind. Let's pray.